doing our systematic study of Hebrews. So if you'll turn in the back of the New Testament, we'll be in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. We'll start reading at the 23rd verse, and we'll continue through the end of the chapter. If you need a Bible, Pastor John in the back has some in his hand. There's some on the front platform. If you want to grab it and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, we'll begin reading at verse 23. Now, over the weeks of our study in this wonderful, powerful epistle, the writer has established very clearly, very, um, very uh, plainly the doctrinal truth in every way that Jesus is superior. He's superior to any religious person, any religious priest, um, angelic creature, uh, that his death on Calvary's cross was sufficient for the forgiveness of sin. Because keep in mind that the initial reader was those Jewish believers there in the first century that was um, tempted to go back to the old covenant, to the animal sacrifices, to the ministry there at the temple. And so here is the writer that is encouraging them in every way that Jesus is better. Uh, he is superior. He is the one who he is, the great high priest, the compassionate and sympathetic high priest. He's our mediator and access to the Father. We saw it be established in every way in chapters 1 through 10, who he is and what he did for us, that the animal sacrifices could not take away sin. That's why they had to do the animal sacrifices uh, day after day, year after year. But Jesus died once and for all. We see that phrase, particularly in chapter 10, that is given to us that he died for our sins on Calvary's cross, and now he is the one that saves to the uttermost, and also he is the one that is our access to the Father because we can come boldly into the Holy of Holies, where the tangible presence of God was in the tabernacle. We can come to the throne of grace because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So these are powerful truths that are being declared to them and to us as well. And so he is, being the author of eternal salvation, uh, the law, the animal sacrifices, the priestly ministry, the old covenant could not do that. It, it couldn't even bring you, it could not bring perfection, bring you into the presence of God because only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year for a short time. So now that you put your faith in Jesus, uh, who he is, what he has done for you, that faith brings justification, salvation. And then at the end of chapter 10, that the just shall live by, not by the law or the animal sacrifices or any of that, the old covenant, the just shall live by faith. And over the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at examples of those who live by faith. Starting in Genesis, Abel, who offered a better sacrifice, killed by his brother Cain. Uh, the initial reader uh, going through persecution themselves by their brethren. Enoch, who walked with God for 300 years and then was taken. We know that Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years as God told him to build an ark and then he was going to judge the world. And then last week we looked at the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so we want to finish this wonderful chapter that's called the Hall of Faith, as most of us know. And as we look at Moses, who walked by faith, now keep in mind, think about it, that Moses walking by faith, that was an important point to make to those Jewish believers to understand, because who was Moses? Moses was their deliverer. He took them into the wilderness where they received the law. He gave them the law. He represented the law. They were under the law. 
but Moses walked by faith. So looking at his life, let's begin to do that. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. So we, most of us, if not all of us, were familiar with the story of Moses there in the book of Exodus. The parents of Moses, Jochebed and Amram, they would get the decree from Pharaoh as he looked out at that time. He saw that the Hebrews were multiplying greatly, and he was afraid. He thought they're going to take us over. So he makes that decree that all male children born to the Hebrews were to be drowned in the Nile River. Moses is born, and it was the parents of Moses saw that he was unique and special and very beautiful child. So they hid him for three months. And we know that after three months that they built a little ark for him, a little boat. They put Moses in that ark and floated him down the Nile River. And he ended up being found by Pharaoh's daughter. Faith was involved in the birth of Moses because Moses had godly parents who were willing to listen, take a real stand for God, who walked in the fear of God. And parents, that right there reminds us that our children are very special and very beautiful and unique to not only you, but to God as well. And you make a godly stand for them in your home. Protect them from Egypt and the world and, and make a godly stand in how you live your life and what you allow to come into your home that will affect them. And know that God has a wonderful plan for them. And again, I know I keep reiterating this, but what an important message that we're going to be given to those kids that are coming to Vacation Bible School because Egypt has not given them that message that they were created by a loving God who sent his son to die for them and save them and has a wonderful plan for them. Egypt is going to not tell them that truth. So God has a plan for them, and we want to encourage our kids that as they grow and learning in school and excelling in the things that they're interested in or involved in, don't forget to remind them to look to the Lord, that he has a unique plan for their lives, and to look to their Heavenly Father to guide them in everything that they do. And it would be the parents of Moses that would trust God and work not only in their lives, but the life of their son Moses. As we continue reading in verse 24, by faith Moses when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. This is absolutely, to me, amazing, verses 24 through 26, what is being told to us of Moses. We, again, being familiar, if not all of us, most of us, the book of Exodus, that the first 40 years of Moses' life was spent growing up and being raised in the palace of Pharaoh. He was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. We know that Stephen, in the book of Acts, when he gives his testimony before the religious council, that he tells us that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So many biblical scholars, historians believe, as they look at the book of Exodus, that with him being the son of Pharaoh's daughter and, and being mighty in words and deeds, and there's even been some references 
that have been found of a Moses who lived about this time, it would be 3,500 years ago and about 1,500 B.C., that there was a Moses that led uh, Egypt in victory in battles. So we can say with quite with certainty, and it's very probable that Moses was being groomed to be the next pharaoh of Egypt. Now, at that time of Moses' birth, Egypt was the mightiest, most powerful empire in the whole world. So think about this. The pharaoh would be the mightiest, most powerful, richest man in the world. Matter of fact, the pharaohs were seen as a god, and we know that the Egyptians worshipped many gods. And that's why these verses are so remarkable. The faith of Moses... He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh. And I have this underline in verse 25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with his brethren. And he looked forward to the reward, the eternal reward, the riches of Christ. So to the world's perspective, Moses had it all in those first 40 years. All that anyone in the world would desire. He had had all the power. He had all the prestige. He had all the prosperity, all the prominence. And he says no to it, choosing to suffer affliction with the people of God, his brethren. And like Abraham that we talked about last time, rejoice in Christ's day and esteem the riches of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt. So can I ask us a question this morning, really in the honesty of our hearts, what is it that we esteem? Is it Egypt? Egypt being a typology of the world? Or is it the riches of Christ in the kingdom of God? You might remember from your high school class, um, you know, history class, uh, the boy King Tut. Uh, he was King Pharaoh of Egypt only about 100 years after Moses. And they found his tomb and they found, you know, he, his mummy and and it was in the British Museum for a long time. They took that display out because uh, somebody just told me they were just there a couple of weeks ago and it wasn't there. So either it's in the basement of the British Museum or it's, it's gone, you know, on a tour somewhere else. But they, they found it when they put King Tut in and the pharaohs, they would put the gold and the silver in the tomb and they found uh, his, King Tut's, at, in 1922. So for 3,500 years, that tomb was sealed. Once they sealed it, it was sealed, and nobody was to go into it. In 1922, archaeologists found it. They brought it out. Um, as they opened, there was three coffins. He was in the third one, and there was all this gold and silver and, and precious stones that were in that third coffin. And there was gold and silver and, and, and um, treasures that were in uh, the tomb that was there. And they did a CAT scan of King Tut. And is believed he was 19 years old when he died. Um, he lived a short life. Uh, he, it is believed, maybe died in a chariot accident because the scan that they did, he broke his leg, uh, had a hip fracture. Uh, perhaps he died from gangrene uh, with a broken leg is what a lot speculate. But then you have the conspiracy people that come along and said, well, it showed a head wound and somebody tried to kill him and all of this. You can do all that reading you want to do. It's good bedtime reading if you are looking for some interesting things to read on. But the bottom line is 19 years old. He lived a short life. And he was buried with all his gold and idols 
And they believed that once they put it in there in that tomb and sealed it, that all the gold and, and silver and idols would go with them into afterlife. And it didn't. He wasn't able to take it with him. Moses understood that. Moses gave that all up, the, the riches and the prosperity of Egypt, because in faith he looked forward to God's riches, which is much richer than anything that Egypt or the world has to offer. And God's riches are eternal, and the world's riches are temporary. And from the world's perspective, Moses was given up everything, literally, to gain affliction by leaving Egypt. And what I pray and hope for all of us that are here this morning, that we would understand really what the truth is. That I am so thankful that the word of God comes and brings clarity and understanding to us and sets the record straight. That we wouldn't go through life having the wrong perspective. And that is that if you try to gain the worldly riches at the cost of the heavenly riches, I got to tell you this, Christian, it is not worth it. And when we get to the point of our lives where we realize that it is Christ's riches and working for the kingdom and storing up our treasures in heaven, when we really understand that and make that our own, then great is that day. And Moses, by faith, understood that, even though he was in the palace of Pharaoh and learning all the wisdom of Egypt, he understood somehow, by faith, that the riches of Christ were greater. And for you and I to remember that Ephesians chapter 1, in the spiritual blessings that are told to us, that in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, an eternal inheritance. So I want to prioritize living for Him. It doesn't mean that we can't pursue business or enjoy things of this life, but He is the priority for whatever it is that you do in life and however you've been blessed in life. That He is the one. That is the priority of my life, Lord. And I want to esteem the riches of Christ more than what Egypt has to offer. And if you go through affliction, which you probably will, remember that as these guys are being written to, that they were plundering their goods, as we saw in chapter 10. But we look at Moses, who's an encouragement to us, by faith looking to the reward, the riches of Christ. And if you lose out in this world, in your job, in your business, in however you lose out, because you're not going to compromise, it's okay. Because of the heavenly reward that awaits you. A couple quick notes that you can just jot down that I'm going to reiterate in these verses because I think they're so powerful in verses 24 through 26. The faith of Moses while he's in Pharaoh's palace. Number one, store up your treasure in heaven. Thieves won't be able to break in. Rust won't destroy. Moss won't eat. That's what Jesus said. You know, store up your treasure in heaven. And there's eternal. It's going to last. But here on earth, if you store it up, thieves are going to break in. You know, you've heard of tomb robbers, you know, that would look for tombs to rob the treasures and all this. Uh, rust destroys the moss, you know, in a beating. It's temporary, in other words. And you can't take it with you. Which leads to number two. Teach this to your kids, to your grandkids, to whoever that you have opportunity to minister to. 
that having all of the world, what it has to offer is not going to bring you lasting happiness and fulfillment and true satisfaction. Possession is not where it's at. Crisis where it's at. And you see Madison Avenue and the advertisements of the world and the philosophy of the world is going to say otherwise, that you're not happy unless you have this thing or have enough of that or that you store up more goods or you have more money, whatever it may be. And if you have money, praise God and be a good steward of it. But we know those of fame and prominence that have great wealth and they're leading very tragic, miserable lives. We see it all the time with people of fame. Because they don't have the Lord. So keep a heavenly perspective. Even in the church, it has crept in so much about what's in it for me and live life now and the prosperity movement, and it's sad. And the Christians that are buying into that and making it a priority, their theology and how they live, they're being cheated and ripped off. Help teach your kids a heavenly perspective. And I know that I'm parking on this a little bit this morning. And the reason that I am is because I know the stupid seduction of the world. To pull us away from the Lord and the things of the Lord. And at this time of the year, we're seeing young people that are graduating. And for young people, but for all of us to understand that the world is not going to bring you ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness. It is living for the Lord who wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. Which leads to number three. Moses had faith in that he let God direct and chart his destiny instead of Pharaoh, Egypt, and the world. I'm going to say that again. Moses had faith in that he let God direct and chart his destiny instead of Pharaoh, Egypt, and the world. You let God direct you and guide you, not the world. Let God direct you in what he wants to do in your life. Why? Because he wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. You want to live life the way it was meant to be lived? Live for Jesus. And he will do more in your life than you will ever be able to do in pursuing the world, which leads to number four. Moses knew that living for God meant to suffer affliction, but he chose to do that rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. The Bible tells us there's pleasure in sin, but it is passing. All right, will we remember that? It is passing. And if you're prioritizing and pursuing sinful lifestyle, living in immorality, pursuing drugs and alcohol, living by the dictates of your flesh, living for the world and the worldly pleasures, it's going to lead to an empty life. Oh, you may have some pleasure for a short time. But for 26 years of ministry, I have seen it catch up with people to where they are empty and in bondage. And they're cheated and they're depressed and defeated and they're in despair. And what will happen is that the world is going to deceive you into thinking this is the pursuit of happiness. And we're told that when it is pursuit of Christ that will bring great happiness. Blessed are him who trusts in the Lord. That word means to be happy, oh, so happy, and to have joy and to have peace and wisdom. Don't pursue the world, please. 
because the world's going to rip you off and do you in. And Pharaoh, you will find out, is a ripoff and a liar. And Egypt is going to hold you in bondage like the children of Israel. And Egypt is a terrible taskmaster. Live for Christ. And every day allow him to direct and guide you and know that there's passing pleasure in sin and that you will be afflicted and know that sin is going to bring you into bondage and depression and emptiness and that's why it's a loving father that says, I don't want you to sin. I cannot for the life of me understand more and more pastors that are behind the pulpit saying, just live the way you want because that's not the message of the Lord. And we talked about in Isaiah as we were finishing chapter 35 that in the millennium reign it talks about the highway of holiness that we are going to be, you know, walking in literally in the kingdom age, a highway of holiness. And you see, that's what the Lord wants us to walk right now. There's a higher way of living. There's a better way of living. That's the highway of holiness because you walk the highway of the world. It's going to just be bad news. Not because Pastor Jeff said so, because the Bible declares that. Walk the highway of holiness to be free, truly free, to live for him, to, to experience the great joy that he has, the wisdom of God, and to have God working in such wonderful ways. But as we continue on in verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. So Moses trusted God. And when Pharaoh was angry at Moses because Moses had killed the Egyptian taskmaster, he would leave Egypt when he was at 40 years of age. The next 40 years he's there herding sheep on the backside of the desert till God calls him. And at the 80 years of age, Moses started his ministry. Don't ever think that you're, you know, too old to, to be in ministry. Moses didn't start till he was 80 years old. And he would go to Egypt and say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart, and the plagues come down upon Egypt, and finally the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, and Passover mentioned here is instituted, and they're going to leave Egypt and become a nation, and they would come to the Red Sea with their backs up against the Red Sea and mountain ranges on both sides, and all of a sudden here come the Egyptian chariots. And you know the story of Exodus chapter 14. And when the children of Israel heard the chariots coming, verse 10 of the chapter tells us, they lifted their eyes and beheld the Egyptians. That happens to us, doesn't it? When we feel like the world, the chariots of the world are about ready to run us over and we got nowhere to go, we behold the problems and the trials and the difficulties when we need to lift our eyes higher and we need to behold the Lord. And it was Moses that in verse 13 would say to the people as they are saying, Moses, why did you bring us out here? We're going to die out here in the wilderness. There wasn't enough graves in Egypt that we got to die out here. And Moses would say, don't be afraid. In verse 13 and 14, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians that you now see today, you're not going to see any more forever. The Lord's going to fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Isn't that wonderful verses? And it makes for a great scene. Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, you know. 
every Easter weekend, there he is, stern look, you know, the wind blowing and holding his staff and saying, you know, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. He's going to accomplish for you. You're not going to see the Egyptians anymore. He'll fight for you and he'll, you hold your peace. And that's what we picture it. But read the chapter carefully because in verse 15, as you continue reading, then it tells us, the Lord says, Why do you keep crying out to me, Moses? Tell the children of Israel to move forward and move on. So obviously, there's a little bit of time between verse 14, stand still, you know, stern look, see the salvation of the Lord, and then verse 15, why are you crying out to me, Moses? Which tells me that probably what happened is Moses, as he says that, he says, uh, just a minute, and he's there hiding behind a rock. He's going, oh, this looks bad, Lord. This looks really bad. What's going to happen here? And, and you know, he, he, whatever it was, the Lord said, that Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell him to step forward. And there are those in our lives that are around us when the world's just about ready to run over you and the people around you, and in your fear and in your doubting and in your weakness, that when everybody else is stepping back, he's going to tell you to step forward. And you're going to see that faith is going to be victorious. And you're able to give a message of don't be afraid and stand still and trust God. And let him move you forward in whatever it is that you're facing in your life. And by faith, it tells us in verse 30 that the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness. Why were they 40 years in the wilderness? You know, we went over it in Hebrews chapter 4. They did not enter into their Canaan rest because of disobedience and unbelief. Go into the promised land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. I'll defeat the inhabitants of the land, the giants. And they went in. The spies came back and said, we can't go in. There's large cities. There are giants. And we're going to be defeated. And so the people began to murmur and cry. And once again, Moses, why did you bring us out here in the wilderness? So that generation that came out, Egypt died out there in the wilderness, the largest graveyard in human history. And then a new generation led by Joshua would go into the promised land. They would cross the Jordan River. We know from the book of Joshua that Jericho was the first battle. And, and notice here how specific the Bible is, that the walls, plural, of Jericho. The reason I bring that out is because archaeologists not long ago determined that Jericho was a doubled wall city. They had walls, plural. The outer wall was about six feet thick. The inner wall, 12 feet thick. Both walls over 30 feet high. No way the children of Israel were going to knock down those walls. So I imagine... Joshua's generals, the leaders, are thinking, how are we going to defeat this city? The walls are tall. The, it's doubled wall. You, you know, can we burn the walls somehow? Can we ram the gates? And Joshua comes along and he says, hey, God gave me a plan. How Jericho is going to be defeated? And they're probably thinking, okay, is it going to be fire and brimstone or whatever? No, we're going to march around the city. One time, go back to camp. We're going to actually do that for six days. And in the seventh day, we'll walk around seven times, blow the trumpet, give a shout, and the walls will come tumbling down. So it took faith for Joshua and his leaders and the people to trust God in what he said. 
But I also wonder what those on the walls of Jericho, what they're thinking is they're looking at the children of Israel, knowing they're coming into the promised land, and all of a sudden they go around the city. They're probably concerned that first day, you know, and then they go back to camp. Second day, they're concerned. After about four or five days, they're probably thinking, what is up with these guys? They've been out in the sun way too long. You know, what's the deal? They go around once and go back to camp. You see, people are going to say the same thing about you. Because we don't do things like the world. And the people of the world aren't going to get us. And to know that the prophet Isaiah declaring the word of the Lord, that God's ways is so much higher than our ways, better than our ways. And when he does work in a powerful way, God gets the glory. So the walls did come down. And then Rahab, we're told about, we know from Joshua 2, in verse 31 of the chapter we read, she had despised, uh, had faith. Uh, she said to those spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land. We heard what he did to the Egyptians, drowning them in the Red Sea, and the defeat of the king of Bashan and the Amorites. For the Lord your God, he is God, a statement of faith in heaven above and on earth beneath. And she would be saved from the battle of Jericho, as she would be saved also for eternity because of her faith. And she was told to put a scarlet thread out her window, and it would be recognized by the soldiers as they came in, and she was spared in her family. And that scarlet thread, of course, as we read in Joshua chapter 2, symbolizing the blood of Jesus which saves us as we put our faith in him. In verse 32, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms and worked righteousness and obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weaknesses were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens and women received their dead raised to life again the writer of hebrews now saying i could continue on and on all about those recorded in the old testament having faith but time doesn't allow me time would fail me and indeed it would we could spend the rest of the summer just on verse 32 talking about the faith of these that are mentioned and what god did through them and in them the faith of these men and notice that it, they're not mentioned because of titles or their possession, you know, or their position or their prominence, but everyone is mentioned in this chapter because of their faith. Gideon, hiding in a cave from the Midianites, threshing wheat, and the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Gideon, mighty man of valor. And he's going, who, me? Because I am the least of in my family, my family is the least in my tribe, and my tribe is the least of all the tribes of Israel. I'm the least likely to be a mighty man of valor that's going to lead the children of Israel against the mighty, you know, Midianites, 135,000 of them over there in the valley. But the Lord used him, the most unlikely person, to save the children of Israel. Barak and Judges 4. Samson, who had great strength, who blew it, but he had faith. Jephthah defeated the Amorites. David, who killed the giant Goliath there in the valley of Elah, who defeated kingdoms. All these men, their faith, and at times falter, was weak. But Hebrews 11 here commends their faith. And they, through faith, accomplished the mighty work of God, saw the mighty works of God done on their behalf, stopped the mouths of lions. That speaks of who? Daniel. 
quench the violence of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're thinking, okay, what does that really have to do with me? Well, know that when you find yourself in a pit, like Daniel did, as the enemy Satan, who is like a roaring lion, is coming at you, or you're in a fiery trial, God is faithful to those of faith, you as his child to work. And at these times that we just read, it's obvious triumphs that are mentioned here. And we can say the same thing. A lot of us, we have that testimony in our lives. Lord, you shut up those lions' mouths. You saved me from the fiery trial. You empowered me to be a soldier for you in the battle that, that I fought. You raised up and brought to life that which was dead. That marriage that son or daughter that I've been praying for. And we praise God for those times, but we're not done yet. Because verse 35 goes on to say, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, and yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. That's Isaiah, by the way, is believed, sawn in two by Manasseh. I thought I'd throw that out since we're studying Isaiah. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world has, was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains in dens and caves of the earth. Many of faith went through what perhaps we might perceive as defeats. Remember the old ABC Wide World of Sports? Those of us who are older, you know, the thrill of victory when it came on and, you know, the guy in, in, in victory and the agony of defeat and the guy's falling off the ski jump. I, I don't know. I remember that. And you might think, think of that here in verses 33 through 35, the thrill of victory. And then verses, the second part of verse 35 through 38, the agony of defeat. But it really isn't that way. Because understand that in verses 33 through 35, we see that faith gave victory over their circumstances. And then what we just read, faith gave victory in their circumstances. You see, they weren't martyred. They didn't go through affliction and trial because they lacked faith. Unfortunately, there are those in the church that will teach that. They will teach if you're going through any kind of persecution, any kind of suffering, any kind of affliction, you know, it's because you lack faith. I can't think of a more cruel message to give to a Christian and a more false message. They were tortured. They went through affliction. They went through loss, not because they lacked faith, but because they had faith. And to understand that we may go through that as well in our lives, but we have victory in Jesus Christ. And I like what verse 38 says here, that the world is not worthy of those of faith. When Peter was writing his epistle to the Christians who were being persecuted and going through sufferings, he's writing his epistle, 1 Peter, at the end of his life, about the same time that Hebrews is being written. Perhaps they were written in the same city. Peter, that we're pretty sure, wrote from Rome. Perhaps Hebrews. We don't know the authorship for sure. Perhaps Paul writing from Rome as well, being translated in Greek by Luke, who's with him. But about 65 A.D. And here Peter is writing about their persecution and 
he reminds them that you've been rejected by men but chosen by God. You have a privileged status. You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, his own special people. He's called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. And keep in mind that we have a glorious and marvelous status as God's people. We are not people of the world. We're in the world but not of the world. But we are people of God. And in Acts chapter 5, when the apostles stood before the religious leaders, they were in prison, they were beaten, they were on trial, and they rejoiced in that. That they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake. And as verse 39 tells us, all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. What promise did they not receive? that God has provided for us. Now think about this. The Old Testament, those men and women of faith that we just talked about, if you had the chance to go back and see one event, what would it be? The parting of the Red Sea? You ever thought about that? Or am I the only one that's ever thought about that? I think, what would I want to see? The parting of the Red Sea? Would, would I want to see you know, Noah building the ark? Would I want to see you know, the walls of Jericho falling or David that killed Goliath there in the Valley of Elah to see this giant that's nine feet tall. I mean, pretty awesome stuff. But here, as we read about what they went through, they didn't have what we do today. Oh, they're saved looking forward in faith to the cross, but see, we get to look back in faith to the cross. They had obtained a good testimony through faith. But they didn't have what the writer of Hebrews has been talking about that we've gone over all these weeks, and that is the new covenant. We have something far greater than those miracles and demonstration of God's power, even as great as it is. But ultimately, they didn't have the full revelation of what Jesus has done dying for our sins. They had a picture of it. It wasn't clear. Rising from the grave and bring in forgiveness and bring in right relationship with the Father, access to Him, and eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ, who now lives in our hearts because we look back to the cross. They would be sitting here and they would be saying, amazing, absolutely amazing, what we know now, what Jesus did for us. So, Father, we thank you. There's so much that we could spin on this chapter, Lord, but we understand the need for endurance because, because, Lord, there's greater riches. There's a better promise because of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did for us. We're thankful for those who endured through faith in such different ways, their stories, and, Lord, we ask that you'd help us to endure. And I also pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here this morning, that maybe you're here, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, that it is declared in God's word that he is your salvation. It's not you through you, your goodness. It's not through a church. It's not by being religious. It is not through anyone else or anything else. It is in Jesus alone. Jesus alone went to the cross and died for you, the Son of God. Jesus alone rose from the grave, proving he's the Son of God. 
Jesus alone sits at the right hand of the Father uniquely. He is your high priest, your mediator. He is your savior. He is your salvation. And it means that you come to him recognizing your need to be forgiven because we've all sinned. And to surrender your life to Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. He loves you. That's why he came. Today is the day of salvation. It's the most important decision you will ever make in your life. If you've never made a decision for Jesus, will you do that right now? Come in faith. The just shall live by faith and call out in faith to him. Surrender your life to him. And you can say, Father, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of of my sins. I believe, Jesus, you died for me on that cross. You rose again from the grave. You're alive speaking to me through your word in that still small voice. And I ask that you would be my Lord and Savior. Sit upon the throne of my life. And I want to know you and walk with you, live for you. I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you for your truth declared to me. Lord, I want to know you more than anything right now. So help me to walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name.